0: Why did you wear a dress today, Ed? (laughs) It's fancy. (laughs) This is what we usually wear as part of our uh, garments for the word and table service. I wore it particularly because I wanted to be off-putting. So, you know, we're kind of in a season where we're talking about common sense and gathering together in public places, and I wanted you to feel very nervous about approaching me. I have a little a little tag on my on my dress as well that says, uh, "I'm hugging you in my mind." <laughs> Before we launch into what I wanted to say about today's gospel, I really did want to talk seriously about this business of COVID-19 virus, the coronavirus. We're taking some temporary steps to help keep everyone as healthy and as safe as possible well, when we gather for worship and when we gather in some of our other events. Um, before I articula- articulate those, let me first say that my real conviction and our conviction as a as a group, as a body, is that we don't want to confuse trusting God um, as an opposition to common sense, right? Um, we don't want to be guilty of the temptation that satan does to jesus when jesus is at the top of the pinnacle of the temple and satan says throw yourself down because god will protect you in other words do something that is not sensical at all because you think god will just make up for you being stupid right um so we're not doing that uh, the The scripture tells us even in Mark 16, these signs will accompany those who believe and then Jesus begins to list these claims. They will pick up snakes with their hands. It will not hurt them at all. So even though these statements like this, nobody, even if you accept them totally at face value, most of us don't think we should just go out and find some snakes to play with because of a text like this. Oh, look at we can touch any deadly thing. It won't hurt us. Let's go do that. I don't think violating common sense is right if, uh, or is some kind of a sign that you don't have true faith. Years ago, when I was uh, in the first church I was pastoring, this is back in the in the late eighties. Um, I had a dream in the middle of the night. I know it was a spiritual dream because I woke up right immediately after the dream in the middle of the night and I sensed God's presence and God spoke to me through this dream. But here's what the dream was. I'm in a car with my two youngest, uh, Elizabeth, Lissa, we call her. She had to be about two years old maybe, and David, my my third son, was also sitting, and I'm driving, shooting down a six-lane highway, going pretty quickly, and I was reading to them from the Bible. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm reading and talking to them. We're laughing, talking about God, and uh, talking about the scripture I was pointing out to them, and every once in a while, I'd look up and just adjust my steering wheel, and then in the dream, as the dream was coming to its uh, apex, uh, I realized I look up, and the and the highway had turned and we were shooting off, you know, just about ready to crash through, because there was no way I was going to recover. I was going to crash through. And, and in that moment, I, I looked at them and said, well, guys, we're going to go see Jesus. And uh, literally, this is what happened in the dream. And I woke up in the middle of the night, just woke up and I felt the presence of God, very unusual. And I heard these words, do not tempt the Lord your God. And I, there's a number of reasons why I think that happened at that particular moment in our lives, but here's what the bottom line was. I wasn't using common sense on a number of things. And I was just thinking I don't have to because God has my back. And so I'm deeply convinced that we should use common sense and not just think and do what we would do if there was no miracle that came, right? But when we do what we could do, we shouldn't trust what we do. We should always trust, do what we're supposed to do, do what makes sense to do, and then trust God with the rest. Now, so in that spirit, we're implementing a number of changes over the next few weeks, and we'll watch what's going on in, our, in the culture, what's going on around, uh, particularly in our state, in our city, from the CDC, all that sort of thing. But we're doing several things. Like we have some folks that are there to open the doors for you so that and a million people are touching hands on the same space. Uh, we have uh, some uh, volunteers that will be stationed at the uh, Table for the kids to check in as you ran into, so that not a bunch of people are touching the iPads. Uh, we want to be sanctuary to be a no handshaking zone over the next few weeks, which means you can either just, you know, how, how some many cultures do, they sort of acknowledge each other with a slight bow. Uh, that happens in Africa and Asia, all over the world, people do that, as opposed to shaking hands, which is particularly a Western deal. And when we do our grace and peace, to, to just somehow acknowledge each other, you can foot tap if you want to. Those of us over 60, you're not sure we can balance with that, but <laughs> we encourage you to do that. During communion, we're only going to be going to the bread. We'll be communicating the bread. Clergy will be communicating the bread to you. And we've talked about this before. You understand that the full blessing of the Eucharist is always thought to have been present in both the bread and the cup. So just doing one is not a problem. And in history, there's been huge segments of history where the church just communicated the bread. Um, we want to do that, and we'll make sure we'll wash our hands beforehand and after as well. We want anyone, encourage anyone who isn't feeling well or who as kids that are not feeling well, to stay at home. And the things to look out for, you know, there's things like sneezing and headache and coughing and, you know, fever, runny nose, that kind of thing. Now, don't feel bad if you cough occasionally. Some of us just cough once in a while because there's something in our throat. Sometimes when I get, I'm, I, I, every time I get in a different room, like here, I get the sniffles. I get, I'm not sick. So don't, everybody that sneezes or does something, don't think they're necessarily sick. Yeah, thank you for that week, whatever that was. <laughs> <laughs> of course, it's important to wash our hands regularly. Some people say, do about 20 to 30 seconds. And uh, you can, some people say, do the happy birthday song. I do the Our Father. And if you do the Our Father at a certain pace, it's about 30 seconds that it takes you. It's a beautiful thing to do while you're washing your hands. And uh, uh, we'll we'll do that kind of thing. And finally, and please hear me on this, this might be a total overreaction, right, to what's going on, but why not overreact, not be in fear, but just be appropriate. Because here's the bottom line. We're really not trying to protect ourselves. At least I don't think we should be. I think we should be trying to emphasize the fact that there are people amongst us that are more um, susceptible, more vulnerable. There are those that are the least of these that uh, are often susceptible to illness. And we really are doing this for our neighbor, for the people around us. It's really for their safety that we take Uh, steps to prevent the spread of illness, spread of disease, and uh, so we encourage you to participate in that, okay? Good? All right, don't come near me. (laughs) Our gospel... (laughs) Actually, if this kind of thing freaks you out, welcome to Sanctuary, right? And get over your stuff. (laughs) Our gospel reading includes probably the most famous text in the Bible, for God so loved... The world. They gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but actually have a different kind of life, not just natural human life, which we already have, but a life from eternity. That Somehow, as um, uh, Peter says it, we become participants, participators in the divine nature. Somehow being connected to Jesus opens up a pathway for us to experience a life that wasn't just afforded to us as human beings, it's divine life. Now, because Lent is a time for repentance, um, it's also a time for reaffirming God's love for us. That's why a text like this is found in the readings, which is essential. You have to have an affirmation in your heart about God's true love for you if you're going to ever feel safe enough or confident enough to enter God's presence to acknowledge your unfaithfulness. If you don't know God loves you, there's going to be a fear that's in you that doesn't need to be there. The message of the Bible is clear. God loves people. God loves you. And it's a kind of love that's not based on our being worthy of love. We're loved because God is love, pure and simple. The Bible claims that each of us was imagined and planned for before we were conceived. And that God chose the time in history. Scripture actually says this. That he chose the time in history and the place in the world where you would be born. This means that you are a dream come true from God. The psalmist pondered this and he wrote in Psalm 139, 6, such knowledge ah, is too wonderful for me. It's too lofty for me to attain. He said, I can't. I can't quite grab this. It's beyond my ability to grab. And the idea is maybe it needs to grab me instead of me trying to grab it. I'd like to suggest to you that the central part of our Lenten journey together with its fasting and with its an attempt to add things that maybe we haven't been doing, like extra prayer or whatever, it's to rediscover God's love for us, uh, which involves some repentance. The word translated repentance is actually just a word that means changing of your mind where you stop thinking about something in a certain way and you rethink it. And the idea is is that there's no greater repentance than the repentance about the issue of God's love for us. Because many of us think about God's love wrongly. And we get it wrong. Getting it right isn't just a decision we have. We actually, it actually, we actually need help from God to get it right. And my prayer this morning is that we'll get it right. Listen to this, this Ephesians 3, starting in verse 17. Paul is praying for the, for the churches, and he's praying that their Christ may dwell in your hearts, he says, through faith. He says, and I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, He's talking about a power that's outside of ourselves. Together with all the Lord's people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love, he says, that passes knowledge. (laughs) Odd phrase, to know something that passes knowledge. right? That you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Paul is writing and talking about an internal knowing Of God's love and the breadth of it, the height of it, the depth, the length of it, so that we can know it in a way that's beyond figuring it out rationally, that we know it inside our knower, right? The thing inside us that believes beyond our thinking. There are all kinds of aspects to this, but let me give you three areas of repentance that I think are needed concerning the love of God. And these are ways that you and I need to change our minds or repent about the love of God. The first one is this. Don't give in to the temptation to judge God based on things you see that are evil in the world. Not everything that happens is God's, by God's design. It was 9.40 in the morning in Lisbon, Portugal, on November 1st, 1755. That was All Saints Day. Everybody was in church. And while they were there for the Feast of All Saints, there was a huge earthquake in the city and in that area that measured around 8.5 to 9, and it lasted some six minutes. There were fissures in the middle of downtown that opened up uh, that as wide as 16 feet. It shook the city, buildings toppled. Lisbon is on a sea, and the water at the shore receded, which you know what that means we were getting ready for a tsunami, and about 40 minutes later, a huge tsunami, there ended up being two of them, rolled into the city. An estimated 100,000 people were killed that Sunday morning, and it sent shockwaves through Europe because it was a holy day. It was a day when people were gathered to worship, and how in the world did this happen? where was God? And much of what we understand to be the modern reaction to God being dead was rooted in that event in Lisbon in the 1700s. In 1989, or 1918 rather, this influenza pandemic that we talked about a couple weeks ago, it started in January of 1918 and lasted through December 1920, so it's about 100 years ago. It was called the Spanish flu. And it was an unusually deadly influenza pandemic. It affected 500 million people around the world, which was about 27% of the population of the time. And um, the death toll of that flu is estimated to be anywhere from 17 million to 50 million. And some think it could be as high as 100 million people. It's one of the deadliest epidemics in human history. Where was God? Well, the answer to that is from our understanding of Revelation from sacred texts is God was with everyone. God was with the ones who got sick and died. God was with the ones who got sick and lived. God was with the ones who were helping those who were sick. Because God is with us in the less than perfect world in whatever happens in this world. That's the message of the gospel. Why doesn't God stop all the bad? The claim is one day he will, but that day is not yet. The claim is that sometimes he does stop evil when we pray, and sometimes he doesn't. And we don't understand all the tricks to that. And I used to have five you know, basic rules to prayer that would get prayer every single time. And I did that while I was in my 20s until it stopped working as well. The consistency of God on this side of eternity is that God is always with us. That's what you can trust. Irrespective of what happens, God is always with us. We live in a soul-forming world. Here, there is temptation and there is suffering. Jesus came here to show us how to walk in this imperfect world and how to trust God in this imperfect world. And he opened pathways for grace For us to be able to endure, to live, to struggle well, to win sometimes, and to lose and to die when it's time to die. That all of that, the whole of human experience is wrapped up in Jesus Christ. Repentance here looks like refusing to judge the love of God based on our view of what we think God should be doing or not be doing. One of the young men of sanctuary died this past Friday, Aaron Loba. He was only in his 40s. He'd been struggling with heart issues for years. Giving the severity of his heart issues and health issues, they considered the time he had on earth as gift. What if you had been Aaron, facing serious life-threatening illness? What if you had been his wife, Amber, who's here with us this morning? Grace on you, girl. How would you judge God? Would you celebrate the joy of Aaron's life as a gift and be thankful for what good you had? Or would you be angry and question if God was loving? Let's just for a moment pause and pray for this family. God, God, of grace, would you come and bring comfort and strength, surround Amber, the family, with your mercy. Thank you for Aaron's life. Thank you that celebration can be had and that they will grieve well. Thank you for people who are faithful to you in the worst of times and in the best of times. Amen. A second area that may require some repentance in our minds about God's love is to recognize the biblical claim that God's love is not contingent on our behavior. The Bible claims that God's love is unconditional, which means it has no condition attached to it, there are no strings attached. This means God does not love you based on your performance, which is deeply disorienting for us, particularly in the West, because we live in a performance-based world. It does not take long for us to figure out that we get further with mom and dad if we obey and comply, that our siblings are nicer if we act the way they want us to, and that colonies of friends will buzz for our attention if we perform admirably. Teachers' pets are chosen based on achievement. Bosses choose favorites based on their accomplishments. And sadly, religious leaders even favor the spiritual ones who participate in everything that the leaders concoct for them. Jesus may love you, but we have a plan for your life. So from parents to siblings to friends to Whomever we have had the perform to belong belief drilled and reinforced into us over and over and over again. It's easy to believe that this is normal and to assume that God thinks this way too. We assume God loves us based on how we act. That's how everyone else loves us. If this isn't right, it sure is the way it is. But here's the deal. Though performance impresses people, it does not impress God. God's love for you has nothing to do with what you do. I mean, it turns out that what we do matters. We'll talk about that in a second. But not because that it impacts God's love for us. It doesn't matter for that reason. This means God isn't looking for something inside you to merit his love or to find some encouragement in himself to be able to love us. God just loves you, period, period. God's love has you covered. No matter if you have the occasional blunder or if you have some significant addictive behavior and you feel out of control and a slave to things, I mean, it doesn't matter if it's something as seemingly innocuous as video games or something deeply disturbing and destructive as substance abuse. Maybe you can't control toxic emotions like anger or jealousy or envy. Maybe you're a shopaholic. Maybe you're a workaholic. Maybe you're a secret shoplifter. Or you're involved with inappropriate sexual behavior. Or you're a glutton. Or a sloth. Right? Where you're a constant procrastinator and refuse to want to do anything that's meaningful work. I mean, it doesn't matter how you act if it's badly, if it's unhealthy, the bottom line is it does not impact God's love for you. God just loves you. He's bigger than your stuff. And God's bigger than our addictions. That's why I think He makes forgiveness so easy, because He wants us simply to confess it and say, We're idiots. Duh. Look what I did. Look what I'm doing. So that it can be out of the way and that God can begin to address what's triggering those things in us. It's often a journey. It's often a journey that takes a lot of honesty and help outside of ourselves. But God's not mad at you if you're broken, if it doesn't seem to be working. And in order to actually see change, that's where you start. We can only love him because he first loved us. We can only begin to change behavior when we know we're loved irrespective of behavior, that we belong before we behave. We don't have to behave to belong. 1 John 1, 9 says it so beautifully. If we just confess our stuff, he's faithful and justice has been arranged so that he's just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all Um, that's not right about us. Anything that's not right about you. Even by confessing the one stupid that you're aware of cleanses all the stupid you're not aware of. What a deal. And here's the bottom line. God is more faithful to forgive you than you are faithful to sin. You're not going to beat him. I was a kid in high school sitting at my dining room table our dining room table my family's dining room table in Nielsville, Wisconsin little little town of 1800 people and i'm sitting there and i was feeling such shame because i was assessing my life i was a new believer flailing with my faith when i was with i was i was usually mirroring whoever i was with so if i was with bad people i acted badly if i was with good people i acted good there was some degree of sense of being a hypocrite. Every new command I heard about in church, um, you know, from obey my parents to pray, to witness to others about Christ. I mean, they were just, they just kept showing me more reasons why I was failing. I kept trying to manage my attitudes, my sexuality, my procrastination. (laughs) I, I was more naughty than nice. This cloud of guilt and condemnation seemed like it pervaded most of my days. It's like from the old pig pen in the Charlie Brown cartoons. Everybody walked there. ah, Man, that so captured me and my sense about myself. And I remember saying to God, I I don't think I can do this. And um, God was so kind to me. I was sitting there, and as I was sitting there in the middle of the day, now, now in the middle of the day, I do drift off into sleep because I'm an older guy. But this was not, you know, I was young, full of vigor. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm sitting there and I went into a trance. And I saw myself in the Statue of Liberty of all places. I had gone there when I was a kid. I, I was born in New York City. And my mom used to take us around the city. And one time they took us up into the Statue of Liberty. I was just a little guy, and when you get up to the top, I don't know if it's still open today. I don't. I, for a while it was closed. There's a the art the hand with the torch, the arm with the torch. Uh, you could climb up into it in a spiral staircase. And every quarter turn or so, there was a seat that you could sit out because if you were up on your way up and you were um, older or somehow got tired, you could. You could actually sit out on from the staircase, right? They didn't, if you were really taking a long time, people didn't say, get him out of the way and throw you off. There was actually space for you to catch your breath, right? And I'm on that in this trance. I'm on that staircase. And in my mind, I imagine that every time that I would trip or skin to my knee or somehow delayed the progress, it was like I thought I had to just you know, be thrown off and just fall all the way, poof, down to the bottom and have to start all over. And I, I, that's why I kept getting so discouraged because I kept thinking every time I sinned, it's like I did nothing right. And the Lord in that moment showed me that if I skinned my knee or hurt myself in some way, I could just shimmy over <laughs> and just sit on that seat and catch my breath. That when I sin, I didn't have to lose ground. That when I fail, it's not like it's over and I have to start all over again that I can sit before him for a God who's more faithful to forgive me than I'm faithful to sin. To a God who my sin will never scream louder than the blood of Jesus Christ from the cross. That every time I feel guilty about my sin, what I'm saying is my action was stronger than Christ's. And that's a hubris. That's a pride that far exceeds the even sin I committed. text like 1 John 1, 9 spoke to me and I've discovered that God knows we are mere flesh. He's not thrown by our stupid. I've discovered that there is no condemnation in Christ and that we can never exhaust the mercy of God. Repentance then looks like accepting that in your core, refusing condemnation when you fail acknowledging that you're loved in your failure. And that's a tall order for us because it's so counterintuitive to the culture in which we live. Now here's where this gets tricky. Because even though our actions do not affect God's love for us, our actions do impact our destiny. though you are loved irrespective of your behavior, living in between failure and forgiveness and failure and forgiveness, if you addressing that is not, it's, it's the stuff of survival when you just use 1 John all the time. It'll help you survive, it'll help you, but it won't help you get to the top because you're spending all your time sitting out here, Right? Destiny is realized when love doesn't just make you realize that you're loved irrespective of what you've done, but love actually drives new behavior. There's something about knowing God loves you and that when you sin, he loves you, that in that openness, and that moment of cleansing, it's not so you stay the same. It's so that you can begin to change, not because of self-effort, but because of love, because of God's power in your life. There's a grace that restores, but the same grace will empower you to new life. And it's something like, you know, when you go to the doctor and they hit that spot, you know, on your knee, that reflex spot, that when you hit the love of God, when the love of God hits you rather, and it hits you, the response, the reaction is to act well, to live rightly, to say no to sin that you've been saying yes to. And it takes a while to figure out how that works. And you may have sinned 490 times today, But God forgives you every time. But the reason he makes it so easy to forgive you is because he's trying to address without condemnation in the room, without guilt in your soul, that he's a God who can make the life that you live different than the life you lived in the past. Father Paul so brilliantly was speaking this morning from this text and from the text that's given for, uh, that we didn't read that's in the Old Testament reading for today in the in the electionary for the church. Um, uh, th- that text was how Abraham left the world he was living to a new space, to a new kind of life, to become a new kind of person to start a new nation and how odd that was in the ancient world that only thought things could repeat that the future was determined by the past that you never changed things. Nobody imagined you could actually change your life and yet God speaks into Abraham's world. And as he does, Abraham says yes, and follows God into a whole new way of living. And this is the same text that's connected with the one we just read from John 3, where Jesus said, you must be born again. What? You and I, because of our relationship with the Spirit, can live a different life than we've lived. You say, well, I've only lived this life. I get it. And I've been a Christian for years, and I'm still bumbling. I get that. God's not mad at you. God loves you. If you're a complete addict, God loves you. But I'll tell you this, there is a way out. There is a way for you to be born again. I'm not talking about this moment of asking Christ in your heart. We kind of limit it. Born again means more than just a moment. Born again means you can live a different life with with the destiny God imagined for you. Well, in order to do that, that demands that you and I understand that, are this, that this is a secondary of repentance, and that the idea that God's love is always an impetus for new behavior. Through the wilderness of Lent, its fasting, its commitments, it causes us to prize a holiness that comes by walking in resurrection power. Somehow, we come to Christ and to his light, and it begins to change the way in which we live. All of a sudden, our deeds begin to be recalibrated. Somehow, in this moment, we're using grace not to just restore, but to build. Again, you can use grace to restore, and you never gain ground. You just make up what you've lost. Restoration, as wonderful as it is, does not address the issue of destiny. Destiny is the dream God has for you. It's what he imagined when he created you. It's only when you use grace that not just restores you from failing, but keeps you from failing that you begin to grow into the kind of person God imagined you to be the person God can use listen to this text this is second timothy chapter 2 now notice i'm touching my nose with my kleenex it's because this room has dust in it that makes me crazy i'm not sick this is the text second timothy 2 now in a large house there are not only gold and silver vessels all of you have different kind of vessels gail has this china with, that we use, I don't know, I haven't seen them for years because we've been traveling, moving around, but it's this china that has G on it, you know, that's beautiful, it's for Gunger. We hardly use those, it's a special, special, like Thanksgiving-ish kind of thing. And then we have pocket plates that you can kind of see what has happened on it before. <laughs> right? So there are vessels of gold and silver, there's vessels of wood and earthenware, paper, you know, plates. Some are honorable, some are dishonorable, Right? Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these, he's talking about these things that are common, these things that are just uh, dishonorable, he'll be a vessel of honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. See, how you live determines the kind of vessel you are. If everything you do, you need to, you know, when, when you have know, paper plate, right? You know, what, what is the deal about paper plates? They're always trying to get something out of what's on them. Put a little beans on that paper plate. You know, it just wants it. Just once, it just, and you take the beans off and there's still beans on there. Why did you eat my beans right there? Though That plate eats your beans. Sauce at least. And you can see if you cut it, you know what shows? Ow, ow, I, you cut me, you cut me. So sensitive and touchy and sucky of anything that's put on it. And it's just, you can only use those once. Kind of throw them away. You can't wash them. You wash them, they fall apart. (laughs) They're falling apart here. (laughs) See, sad to say, but some believers are paper plates. Can't wash you. Everything you do, you got to get something out of it. It's for you, right? Not honorable vessels. But some of you, if you'll say, God, I don't care what I get out of this. I'm just giving myself to you. And I want to, I want to be a person that doesn't, tr- doesn't show, doesn't get cut easy, is not easily offended. You can do with me what you want, and I'm not going to show evidence that it was done. This is the stuff of destiny in James 1. It says, blessed is the person who perseveres under trial. For once that person has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those that love him. You and I can get crowns in life, which means you rule. We're not ruled over, that your life begins to step into something. A classic example of this in my history was, I was pastoring in our first church, in Marshfield, Wisconsin, I'm in prayer. The church was about 800 people, which was a pretty large church for this little town that we were in. And and I was there and I was in prayer, not thinking about anything except just saying, God, help me be open to you. And I heard, which did not encourage me, I heard in my heart, you weren't the first choice I had to pastor this church. (laughs) What? And, I, and the Lord began this, I don't know, dialogue, I don't know what it was, that began to show me who was the person and their unfaithfulness. And I knew the guy. I, it was a guy that I had been committed to helping and they became unfaithful and lost their way, lost their lives, really, at least in terms of spiritually. And, um, and I, I remember thinking to myself, God, I, I mean, it surprised me. And here's what I felt the Lord showed me through this, is if you're faithful to God, And repent quickly and keep running to God until love starts kicking back where you're actually loving God back because you've been loved. And it's not human energy, but you've learned to tap into a grace that lifts you, that it tells you to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, that it helps you to do what's right, right? That if you're doing what's wrong, that's just evidence that you're you. And if you're doing what's right, it's not human energy. We're talking about a divine participation in God. If you can start doing that, you'll start moving towards your destiny. And what the Lord showed me, I believe, was that if we're faithful to consistently come back to God, not never fail, but consistently come back and be touched by his grace, that we will begin to navigate into our destinies of what God imagined for us to do. But here's the add-on that I was totally surprised by. I felt like the Spirit showed me. And if you're faithful, you will not only fulfill your destiny, but you'll begin to pick up the destinies of other people who have been unfaithful. That's why I was doing something I wasn't destined to do. I still think I'd... Do some things I'm not destined to do. Not because I'm unfaithful, but because I I have moved toward faithfulness. You pick up things. So my point to you is, is follow God. Decide in your heart that, that your life, you want to build your life on something that matters. One more text for you. This is 1 Corinthians 3. It's an unsettling verse, but let me read it to you anyway. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, And someone else is building on it. He's talking about you and me. But each person should take care how they build, right? For no one can lay the foundation other than the one that is laid, which is Jesus, Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, or here comes the paper products, wood, hay, or straw, your work will be shown for what it is. Because there's going to be a day that will be, it'll be brought to light and it will be revealed by fire. Notice that gold, silver, and costly stones don't quite respond to fire the way wood, hay, and straw does. The way they do. If what we build survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it's burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. Listen, family. It's one of the reasons we do Lent. It helps us to examine what we're building our lives with. Wood, hay, stubble, or with gold, silver, and precious stones. What is your life being built with? This is the season to examine your hearts. We're to imitate Jesus in the wilderness. remember he went into the wilderness and he went through temptation and suffering. And the Bible says after that season, he came back into Galilee full of the Spirit and power. What you and I are doing in Lent is this. We're imitating Jesus. We're stepping into his wilderness experience. Why? Because we're looking for the power of the Spirit, which comes when? When we hit Easter and Jesus is raised from that, that power of that resurrection is what we are trying to calibrate our lives are toward towards. We are anticipating power as we make room in our hearts for God. So let's hear the gospel this morning. For God so loved the world. What does that mean for you?